This week's sermon text is from Luke 20, chapters, I'm sorry, chapter 20, verses 1 to 44. It can be found on page 879 in your pew Bible. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if he said from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him. So that, uh, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Then, uh, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. But uh, when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies and pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and know no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived, that their, he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's, and God the things that are God's. And they were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees those who denied that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the, man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise. All seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman Whose wife will the woman be? For the seven all had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all, for all live to him. 
Then the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him the Lord, and how is he his son? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, may you calm the thoughts of our hearts and the thoughts of our minds. Give us a stillness in your presence as we hear from your word. Send your spirit to open our eyes and open our ears to the wonder of our Lord. May this time be set apart for your purposes. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, thanks for reading that entire passage, Maddie. That was awesome, by the way. So for my whole life, uh, as long as I can remember, um, which for some of you is not very long, for me it's been a long time from my perspective, um, but for my whole life, politics in the U.S. has always been described as ugly. Um, every few years, there's an article that comes out that, you know, gets at the polarization, the, you know, partisanship, the ugliness of, poly of politics. Uh, and there's always this assumption that, well, it used to be better at some point, and this is kind of a sign of the times of how bad it's gotten. This is unprecedented, un historically unprecedented. I remember as a, a recent college grad, uh, I interned for my um, home congressman in Pennsylvania. I was in his D.C. office. And I was meeting with his chief of staff, and I think I was getting career advice or something. And he, he just told me straight up, he said, look, politics is like a game of football. Either we have the football and we're going down the field, or the other team's got the football and they're going the other way. It's like we're either winning and the other side is losing, or the other side is winning and we're losing. It's a, it's a you know, zero-sum game. It's not possible for both teams to win in this game. And as, a, again, a recent college grad who was educated at a liberal arts uh, institution, studied philosophy, was very idealistic. It's crushing to my soul to hear this very, you know, the chief of staff in a, in a congressman's office tell me, no, 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 this is a win-lose game here. And so I remember when I was in D.C., I was there over a presidential election, so you're dealing with the, all the, you know, smearing and the ugliness that comes from both sides during a presidential campaign. And I read an article that has stuck with me. It's very interesting. And the point of the article was like, look, we, we talk about how ugly politics in the United States are, but it's always been like that. And the way he made the argument is he just quoted uh, public statements made by former presidents, by former politicians, well-known you know, men, predominantly men, um, whom you would have heard of and learned about in US history class. And I'm gonna be honest, m most of what he quoted, I cannot say out loud. <laughs> Like, much less could I say it from a, a, a pulpit, because it was just some ugly stuff. I found one, though, that I think I can say, and it's a little bit, anyways, it, it, this is Teddy Roosevelt attacking his successor, uh, William Howard Taft. So Roosevelt was president, and then after him came Taft. So he's a, ta and, and by the way, Ro uh, Roosevelt was a Republican, so was Taft. So these are men on the same political party. And Teddy, at one point, publicly, called his successor Taft, he called him a puzzle wit and a fathead. 
And so when we think about, oh, there was you know, this day of a higher public discourse, well, it was not in 1912. And in retaliation, Taft called Roosevelt a honeyfugal. I don't know how to pronounce that. It is a word. In Microsoft Word, it did not, you know, it did not have the line. It was an actual word. He called him a honeyfugal, a demagogue, and a hypocrite. These are presidents of the United States of America dealing in high-level public discourse. And, I'm just, and all the other quotations, and I can't read them because they were just blatantly racist. They were homophobic in the sense of making innuendos about the sexuality of their opponents. They were just like downright mean, nasty, unsubstantiated claims about other elected officials. And the point is, this is, this is the way it's always been. And there's a realization in that of like, this is how the powerful in our world operate. This is how they operated 100 years ago. This is how they operate today. Because at the end of the day, if your goal is to maintain power, it is much more effective to do that by discrediting your opponent than by actually seeking truth together. It's a lot more effective just to smear your opponent and discredit them than to actually try to join and, and, and figure out what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. And it was true 100 years ago. It is also true 2,000 years ago. It's always how the powerful have operated in our world. Now, if you remember from last week, Jesus has entered Jerusalem, and he has, he has issued a pretty strong prophetic challenge against what I called institutional Judaism. It was the Jewish leaders of the day. And he came into the temple, he cleansed the temple, and he accused them, he prophetically accused them of, 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 of the, the institution of Judaism, of corruption, of hypocrisy, and so because of the public nature of this challenge, coming to the center of institutional Judaism, the temple itself, the, the Jewish leaders, they have to respond. So the question is, well, how are they going to respond? Are they going to take it to heart and prayerfully reflect and spend time seeking God's face? Well, no, instead, they don't do that. Rather, they, they come after Jesus with everything they have. And that's what we just read in our text this morning. This is the institutional leadership of Judaism using every big gun in their arsenal to try to bring Jesus down, to try to destroy him in any way they can. They attack him personally. They attack his politics. They attack his theology. But the one question that they'll never consider is whether Jesus is in fact telling the truth. And there's invitation after invitation after invitation to the religious leaders themselves from Jesus to consider maybe, maybe he really is telling the truth. Stop and consider before it's too late. And for anyone who has eyes to see and ears to hear, Jesus is clearly not just some rebel rouser, upstart teacher from the country, but he really is a man sent from God, the Messiah, the Son of God. So our outline for us this morning as we get through these, this text is, is the first point is, is the direct attack on Jesus. Second point is the indirect attack on Jesus. And the third point is Jesus' turn. Now, it may become obvious to you when the text was read, but we're covering a big chunk of scripture. Um, so just bear with me. We're gonna cover a lot. Um, if you find yourself drifting out, that's okay. Just come on back. There should be more for you. And... Um, and again, I'm not going to be able to hit on every detail, or we would be here till 5 p.m. tonight. I'm going to try to cover what I think is, is, is the main gist of what's going on in these controversies and, and hopefully do it faithfully to, to Christ and his, his scripture. So go ahead and follow along as I read the first two verses in chapter 20. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, 
the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up. And they said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? Here we have a group of people coming, and it's the same that were mentioned at the end of chapter 19. If you remember, when Jesus issues his challenge, I said the lines are drawn. It's Jesus against the Jewish leaders. And in verse 47, it says that the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the city were seeking to destroy him. And so here that's the same group that's mentioned. These are the ones who have now committed to destroying Jesus, whatever it costs them. And they come up to Jesus. Now to explain who these were, the chief priests, those would have mostly been people from the Sadducees. That was the sect of Judaism that predominated in the priesthood. These were the priests who oversaw the worship of the temple. So you can imagine they were not happy when Jesus came in and cleansed out the temple. There were also the scribes that would have mostly been Pharisees. Those aren't quite synonymous words, but most scribes are part of the Pharisees. And then elders, those are just prominent lay leaders in the city. So these are some pretty impressive men, and they come to Jesus, and just to summarize their attack, what they say to Jesus is, what are your credentials to teach here? What right do you have to come and cleanse a temple? And to picture fully what's going on here and what they're trying to do to Jesus, we've got to realize here they're coming to Jesus. This is a personal attack, right? They're not, they're not meeting his teaching. They're not addressing what he's saying. They're just saying, what are your credentials to be able to teach here? And these are some highly credentialed men. These are the, the creme de la creme of the leadership, the most politically religious, influential men in Israel. And they all come up to Jesus and they're straight personal attack. What rate do, who do you think you are? To kind of picture this, imagine I asked you to teach a Sunday school class on a Sunday morning. So you're right back here in that little room, and uh, you know you prepared, you did your best, you're ready, and right when you're about to start, in walks the president of the convention, uh, Ed Litton, and along with him comes a couple seminary presidents, maybe Al Mohler, maybe Adam Greenway, a couple trustee members, and they all sit down in the front row. So you pray, and then when you're about to begin, they all stand up in unison, and they point at you and say, what right do you have to teach us? How? <laughs> I think it's safe to say all of us would be flustered beyond recovery. It's like, okay, let's pray. We're done. Uh, I don't have any credentials to teach you. That's what's going on here. Here are some powerful men. They're coming up to Jesus because they think Jesus is just some, again, you know, preacher from the country. He's come to the big city. Let's show him what's the real deal here. They're trying to intimidate him. Of course, they don't realize how foolish it is to try to intimidate the Lord of life. He's not intimidated. But there's also a strategy here when they show up and they personally attack Jesus. And the strategy here is they're trying to push Jesus towards one or two answers. They ask him the question, what are your credentials? Where does your authority come from? They're trying to get him to do one of two things. One would be for Jesus to say, I don't have any credentials. Because that would discredit him, right? He's, that, that's basically him admitting before all the crowds, you're right, I don't, I don't belong up here. Or they're, getting, they're trying to push Jesus to say, well, my authority comes from God. And that's either blasphemous or that's fairly grandiose. And again, it would discredit him before the people. That's their strategy. That's what they're, they're hoping to do. And let's see how Jesus responds in verses 3 to 4. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, the first time we read this, it seems like Jesus is dodging. It seems like he's evading the question, classic political move. 
First thing to, to just realize is that counter questions were an accepted form of rabbinical dispute, debate. This, this was not him dodging, this was an accepted way to debate. But the second thing is that Jesus isn't dodging. What he's doing is he's raising the stakes. Again, to summarize Jesus' response, what he's saying to the religious leaders is, do you really want to go here? You come with this personal attack, but are you ready to really go here? And to understand why that's what Jesus is doing, we gotta, we gotta think about who John the Baptist was. John the Baptist was wild, widely accepted as a genuine prophet from the Lord by the people. Probably the first prophet since Malachi in 400 BC. Widely accepted as, as a prophet of God. And here's the thing is that John the Baptist had pointed to Jesus as the one who was to come. The authority of Jesus and the authority of John the Baptist hang together. One falls with the other. If you remember in Luke 3.16, this is how John talked about Jesus. He said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then Jesus said, by the way, that, or sorry, then John said, that is Jesus. And so what Jesus is, is doing is he's saying, look, if John was sent from God, that's the question he asked them, if John was sent from God, then, then what he said about me is true as well. And this is the most important question. Again, and let me back up, sorry. Again, this isn't a dodge. It's an invitation to consider. Jesus knows that the religious leaders are coming in bad faith. He's gonna show that, and we're gonna get into that later. He knows they're coming in bad faith. Yet he still gives them an invitation. He's like, look, John the Baptist, do we have any reason to think he was not an authentic prophet? I mean, he was like an Old Testament prophet incarnate, all the way down to the crazy clothes that he wore. And if John the Baptist was a true prophet, then maybe what he said was true. He's inviting them to consider, maybe Christ really was the Messiah. That's the most important question that anyone could ever ask at any time, in any place. Who is Jesus? Everything else in life, especially for the Christian, it flows downstream from that basic question, who is Jesus? The religious leaders are concerned with secondary issues. I mean, there's certainly a whole lot of concern for their own power, for the institution of Judaism, for the kind of formal structure, what will happen concerned with secondary theological questions of ritual purity and all these things, but the most basic question is who is Jesus? Because if he is whom John the Baptist said he was, if he is the Messiah who's come, well then the correct response is national repentance. And you'll figure the secondary issues out. That's what Jesus is inviting them to consider. But Jesus' opponents, again, aren't really seeking the truth, and so they don't consider. Look at verses five to eight. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Again, the religious leaders, they never honestly engage with Jesus' question. There's never a moment where they say, you know what, that's a good point. Who was John the Baptist? He seemed to be a prophet. Maybe what he said about Jesus was true. There's never any genuine soul-searching. It is immediately a public relations 
crisis? How do we save face before the people? What's the most political response we could give? And so they give the classic PR uh, response, no comment. I mean, that's literally what they say. And so Jesus responds, okay, well, then I'm not going to engage your question if you're not coming in good faith. But Jesus knew they weren't coming in good faith. He knows they were just coming to try to discredit and destroy him. And he shows them this. And even this acts again as an invitation of consider, how could Jesus know what's in your hearts if he's just a man? Because then he gives this parable, right? So, so, so they come with this question, they won't answer it, and then immediately Jesus pivots into this parable, which gives a salvation history of Israel. And just to summarize it really quick, again, there's a, an owner of a vineyard, he leaves, he rents out his, his vineyard to tenants, and then he sends servants to try to collect the produce, the grapes, and they beat up the servants, send him away, and then finally he sends his son, thinking they'll respect his son, and they kill his son. And this is a salvation history of Israel. God is the owner of the vineyard. The vineyard is the promised land, the promises of God, the favor of God. Israel are the tenants, and the servants are God's prophets who are going to see his Israel being fruitful with the promises of God. And they ignore them, and then finally God sends his son, and they kill his son. Now something to understand, there, there was an obscure law that if the owner of a property of land died and there wasn't a clear heir, the land might revert to those who were working the land. That's why they kill the heir. They think, ah, if we kill him, then we can get the land. But Jesus is telling the religious leaders, he's like, I know what you're up to. Think how shocking this would have been, okay? The religious leaders are terrified that the, the people will find out they are opposed to Jesus because the people at this point are still with Jesus. So these meetings they're having to try to discredit Jesus, to plan his downfall, these are secret, closed-door meetings before the day of recorded audio clips and social media. And here Jesus just says, I know what you're up to. I know there's murder in your hearts. That would have been pretty shocking for the religious leaders. All the rest of the crowd, they're like, surely not. They have no idea what Jesus is talking about. But the religious leaders do. Jesus knows what they're up to. And even in that, that's an invitation. There's an amazing grace of Jesus to the religious leaders who come in bad faith of invitation after invitation. Open your eyes, I'm not a normal person. How else could he know the thoughts of their hearts? And this is one of the emphases that we will see throughout the Passion Week leading up to Jesus' death, which is that although Jesus will die in weakness, he remains in control. And although Jesus will die in weakness, he was never a weakling. It's an important distinction. Jesus dies in weakness on a cross, but it is not weakness that is powerlessness. It is weakness that is power restrained. When I wrestle with my kids, with Caleb or Addie, um, sometimes I'll let them win, right? And I'll pretend like, oh, you got me. That's weak, that's power restrained. I'm not literally being beaten by my three-year-old and my five-year-old. And of course, I could beat them in a wrestling match. I am strong enough to do that, but I make myself weak so that I can play with them. That's what, Jesus, when he goes to the cross, like yes, he's gonna die in weakness and in humiliation, and the people who crucify him will think that they have won. But it's not weakness in the sense of powerlessness, it's power restrained. And Christ is showing that he is in control the whole way. Yes, he will die on a cross, but it'll happen when he says it'll happen, not a moment sooner. And the 
best and brightest and most powerful of the Jewish leaders can't change a, 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 a fraction of that. Jesus remains sovereign. He remains in control. Well, that's the first point, the first attack, the direct attack. They go after him personally. And Jesus gives invitations to consider who he might be, but again, the attacks, they keep coming. This brings us to our second point, which is an indirect attack. Now, this direct, the first attack, the direct one, failed, backfired pretty badly because the religious leaders, whose job it was to have religious discernment, had to confess ignorance about a pretty basic question of religious discernment, namely, who was this John the Baptist? So they're embarrassed. They exit scene left. And now they're trying to work behind the scenes, still trying to discredit Jesus. And they have two angles of attack. They now go after Jesus' politics, and the second, his theology. So look at verses 19 to 22 with me. The scribes and the chief priests, they sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, "'Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly "'and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. "'Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar?' Well, these spies, they come, and they lay one of, they lay one of the most emotionally charged, contentious issues at the time before Jesus. Tribute is another word for taxation. And again, none of us like taxes. That can be very, you know, like April 15th comes around. It can be very contentious. But at this time, they're paying taxes to the Roman Empire. And so to pay taxes, that was to affirm, to recognize that they were in subjugation to a foreign power. It had to do with their foreign oppressors. And so what these, guys, what these spies are doing, again, is the is, 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 is same thing with the first one. Their strategies are trying to push Jesus towards one of two answers, both of which will discredit him before the peoples. The first is either to affirm taxation. Yes, we do owe taxes, which is to affirm the Roman subjugation, or to reject taxes, which may in fact land Jesus in a Roman prison. Now, I, I can't overemphasize how emotionally contentious this issue would have been. In, in our day, in this time, there are issues that have a similar emotional reaction, where, you know, the temperature goes from, like, a, a, a very comfortable 70 degrees to, like, 120 in a matter of seconds. You know, if we're talking about things like sexual ethics or abortion or immigration or the pandemic, like, things can get, it's just, there's so much emotion that goes along with these topics. Well, if you combine all of those into one super emotionally charged topic. That is taxes in Jesus' day. Landmines are everywhere. How is Jesus going to respond? And again, the strategy is to try to get him into one of two losing answers. So we're verses 23 to 26. But he perceived their craftiness. And he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. His response has two parts. First, he winsomely 
affirms Rome's sovereignty in a really, again, winsome, you know, diplomatic way. It says, pull out a coin. Who's on that coin? What he's saying is, whose currency are you using when you bought bread this morning in the market? Who gives stability so that you might have an economy that can function well? And he gets them to affirm it. He doesn't say, hey, the Romans are in charge. He says, you tell me, like, whose, whose currency are you using in your, in your day-to-day life? Who are you benefiting from? Well, the Roman Empire. But then second, he gives a basic principle of what you might call political theology. How do we as Christians think about a government, especially a non-Christian, a secular government? And that is that a secular state has a genuine function. Even a state that directly denies the existence of God, or at least is neutral about the question. It has a genuine function as part of what we would call common grace, that God created humanity and and society to function in a way so that we create laws and judicial systems so that it's not just the power eat the weak. We have laws. There's nothing in our Constitution that is pulled, I mean, you know, principally you could find some principles, but the Constitution is not quoting the Bible. It's a secular document. It's part of God's common grace. A secular state has a genuine function. Even one that denies God has been ordained by God for certain purposes. And so we should obey and respect secular authorities as long as it doesn't contradict God's commands. That's the principle. So yes, a secular government has, has a genuine role, a genuine function, but then on the flip side... Give to God what is God's. Never worship a government. What does God want? We want our worship. He wants our highest devotion, our highest allegiance. Even if you, know, you think you have your guy in the White House or your guys in, 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 you know, in government and, 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 and you agree with every policy that a government or political party is, is putting forth, it doesn't matter. We don't worship a government. We worship God alone. Give to God what is God's. While we give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And once again, Jesus, in the profundity of his responses, he silences his opponents and they just marvel. What, a, what an answer. Well, that's the first indirect attack because they attack Jesus' politics, but then they keep moving on and here they attacked Jesus' theology. Verses 27 to 40. I'll read this for us. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the, window, the widow and raise up offspring for, her brother, for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. 
So the scribes, the Pharisees, those who teach the law, they came to Jesus, likely with that political question. But here we have the Sadducees. Now, if the Pharisees were kind of the, you know, the, the group of the people, the populist group, the Sadducees were the cosmopolitan elites. They lived in the city. They were the aristocracy of, of, of Israel. Again, you kind of think of the intellectuals of, of, of Judaism. And one thing that's helpful to know about them is they only recognize the first five books of the Old Testament as authoritative. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's called the, the law or the Torah. They only recognize those as, as being the word of God. The rest of the prophetic books, Psalms, all those, not the Bible. And most of the references to resurrection in the Old Testament come in the rest of those books that they deny. And so one of their teachings where they disagreed from most Jews of the day was they did not believe in a resurrection. They thought when you die, that's it. Um, and, there, and, and we don't know all the details of their, of their belief system, but that's what comes up here, is this disagreement over the resurrection. So they come to Jesus, and what they're trying to do is they're trying to show the absurdity in their mind of an actual resurrection. They're like, if a resurrect, I mean, let's just see how ridiculous this idea is. This poor woman, she has seven husbands. What is she gonna do? Like, she, she shows up in heaven and like there's all seven husbands. Which one is she? Is this like divine sanction, polygamy? Like, this is absurd. That's what they're trying to do. And Jesus answers it in two different ways. He says, the Sadducees, they get it wrong in two different ways. First, they get it wrong by assuming that the next life will be like this life, that it'll just be a perfect continuation. But marriage is a temporary institution. It won't exist in all eternity. We won't be married in heaven. We'll be like the angels of God. We'll be brothers and sisters. Now, that's an interesting point that we could sit on for just a quick second. Marriage is a temporary institution. The Bible is very clear that marriage is a gift, right? Genesis 1 and 2, God sees Adam. There's this, this tension of every animal has its complement except for Adam. He's alone. So God, in his grace and his mercy, gives Eve. And, and you know, it's good for man not to be alone. Marriage is a gift, but it's a temporary institution. It was made for fleshly bodies for this life, but in the life to come, we'll have spiritual bodies, and marriage will be no more. And so there's a nuancing there of how we think about marriage. Because in general, in evangelical churches in America, almost everything in the church is geared towards married people. And there's almost an assumption like, of course, you need to be married or something is desperately wrong with you. And we have singles groups, but those are for like, how do we get the singles married, right? Like, that's all we offer for the single people. And there's an irony here because we follow a Lord who was an adult, who was a single adult. We worship a Lord who was never married. Yet sometimes in churches, maybe the most lonely place for single people it's just good to remember, marriage is a gift, but it was not the be-all and the end-all of human experience nor of Christian experience. The be-all and end-all is fellowship with God. And this is really important as we think over the next 10, 20, 30 years in America because marriage rates are falling. In Western Europe, marriage rates have already plummeted. Uh, people are getting married later. Less people are getting married. I mean, large minorities, 30, 40, 50% of adults in 30s and 40s in places like Portugal are not married, have never been married. We're lagging in America. America does its own thing in a lot of ways. But we're following that trend. And so as a church, 
If we're not a place where singles can find community, we're going to miss a huge, we're going to miss a growingly large portion of the population. So the question is, if you're married, are, you know, are you trying to welcome single adults into your life? Because, you know, when you're married and you have kids, like, it, it's, it's all-consuming, and, and we can just be, you know, it's my little kingdom. But are we trying to in, involve single adults in our lives? So anyways, the, the Sadducees first assume the next life will be like this one, but no, we won't be married in the next one. So there won't, that absurd situation, it's impossible. But second, the Sadducees are wrong because they misunderstand God. Their inability to imagine resurrection shows that they don't understand God's creative power. The God is a God who gives life and all people live to him and he can resurrect the dead and he can transform lives. The fact that that is something they can't even fathom proves that they just don't know their own God that they worship, that he is a God of resurrection. And so here again, Jesus silences his opponents. And let's just read verse 40. Well, it's verse 39 and 40. Then the scribes, some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any more questions. The best and the brightest of Judaism, the most impressive men of their day, came against Jesus. And when Jesus spoke, none could respond. It makes me think of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And we just literally saw this fulfilled as Jesus engages the quote-unquote wise of his day on their own turf, and he makes them look foolish. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Christ could defeat the wise of our world on their own terms. He could make them look foolish. He could silence them on their own terms. But Christ came to bring a different wisdom, a deeper wisdom, a true wisdom, a wisdom that's not based on human power, but it's based on human weakness when it meets with God's provision in his son Jesus. It's a different type of wisdom. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so Jesus has silenced his critics. They have not been able to respond to him. And now it's Jesus' turn to ask them a question. And here we get to our last point, Jesus' turn. Look at verses 41 to 44. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And Jesus does something really interesting, and so I'm going I'm to try to explain it here. But it was widely accepted that the Messiah would be David's son. If you remember, God had made a, a prophecy or promise to King David when he was alive, saying, you will have a son, and he will sit on a throne, and that, that kingdom will never end. And at first they thought that meant Solomon, but when Solomon's kingdom ended, they realized, oh, this is, a, this is a promise about one who will come later, who will be David's son in the sense that he will descend from David. He'll be from David's lineage. So that was commonly accepted at this time. But then Jesus looks at Psalm 110, and when he, again, he's giving invitation after invitation to religious leaders, and he's trying to get them to see, you know, you may not understand the Messiah as well as you think you do. 
The fact that they rejected Jesus because he didn't match up to what they thought the Messiah should be. He's like, look, you, you may not, just consider, you may not understand the Messiah. Because in Psalm 110, it's a Psalm of David. It's a Psalm of coronation. So it's, it's David crowning his successor. And it was seen as a messianic psalm in that David is speaking to the Messiah, but something really weird happens in that David calls his descendant Lord. Now, Israel existed in a very hierarchical society, a very patriarchal society, where, you know, if you were the patriarch, if you were the eldest male, the grandfather, like, you had the most honor, the most dignity. You mattered based on who your father was not vice versa. And so for the patriarch, King David, to call his descendant Lord, that don't happen. Unless he was not just the son of David. Do you get where Jesus is going here? He's like, look, David would not have called the Messiah Lord if it was just a human descendant. There must have been something more. It's very subtle. Again, Jesus, he's not giving a slam dunk you know, argument. He's giving them an invitation. Consider. Maybe you don't understand the Messiah as well as you think you do. Consider before it's too late. And this brings us to the end of Jesus' controversies, his debates with the institutional Judaism of his day. Now, I want to just finish with a couple thoughts on apologetics. This is, Jesus is not doing, you know, pure apologetics in the sense of giving an apology for the faith, but he is defending his, you know, messiahship. I think there's things we can see from what Jesus does. Now, when I say apologetics, I mean the, the defense of our faith. When someone comes to you and says, why do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? How, what do you say? How do you defend that? So I have two, just two thoughts. The first one is that even Jesus didn't argue people into the kingdom. If, you know, some of you may, this may not be the way you work, but if you kind of like intellectual ideas and, and apologetics, we, we can have this thought, like, if I just had the perfect response, my neighbor says, why do you believe this? If I just could say the perfect thing and say it in the most winsome way, like, people would just fall on their knees and accept Jesus as Lord. Sometimes it keeps us from opening up and talking to people because we're afraid. They may ask me a question I don't know, and, 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 and I will, like, damn them to hell forever because of my, my bad response. But here is Jesus giving literally the perfect responses in the perfect tone, in the perfect way, with the perfect content, and yet people still reject him. We can't argue people into the kingdom, and that should nuance the place of apologetics in our faith. There is a place for apologetics, and it can very well play a part in the process of a conversion, but it's just a part. Because salvation doesn't just deal with our intellect, it deals with our heart, our will, our emotions, what we love. And those don't follow logical propositions. So the first thought on apologetics is that even Jesus didn't argue people into the kingdom. But the second, and this is kind of the, one of the themes I've been trying to draw out here, is that the most important question when it comes to defense of our faith is who is Jesus? That's how Jesus begins this disputation. When they come to him and they say, what authority do you have to say these things? He goes back to, who am I? I am, like John the Baptist said, I am a messenger from God. I am the Messiah. He begins with his identity. And then he finishes it with, 
his identity. By looking at this Psalm 110, how could David call the Messiah Lord if he was just a human? Jesus begins and ends with who he is. That is the most basic question for both a Christian and a non-Christian. We live in a day and age where certain beliefs in the Bible, like if we're honest with ourselves, they can be hard to stomach. Whether we're dealing with questions of sexual ethics, and you have a friend who's gay, non-binary, transgender, and you love them, and it's hard to, you know, why can't love just be love, as the saying goes? Or you think of eternal hell and judgment and God's wrath, and there, there are just parts of Scripture that, if we're honest, it can be hard for even Christians to stomach. And so we have to ask ourselves, did Jesus rise from the dead or did he not? That's, the bit, that's what it all comes down to. Look, if Jesus rose from the dead, all, everything flows downstream from that. It flows downstream from who Jesus is. If he really is the Messiah, like we can figure out these secondary issues. Because if he rose from the dead, he's, he's alive. It's the most important question. That's what we keep bringing it back when we're talking to our non-Christian friends. Again, there's secondary issues that we can be distracted on, but again, what matters most is Jesus, is he the Christ? Did he rise from the dead? If he didn't, then nothing matters in the Bible. It's just an interesting artifact. But if he did, which he did, which there's good historical evidence that he did, well, then the rest will find the place. We'll figure it out. So to conclude, Jesus' growing break with institutional Judaism, it blows wide open in this passage. The lines are drawn. The religious leaders do everything they can to destroy him, but they can't. Because again, although Christ will die in weakness, although he will die on a cross, it'll happen at his timing, when he wants. And the best and brightest of Judaism, they can't manipulate Jesus, they can't deceive him, they can't intimidate him. He remains a sovereign Lord, no matter what they do. And throughout these controversies, as Jesus, an uneducated carpenter, silences the intellectual powers of his day, his identity is crying out to be recognized. This is not just some man, this is not just some interesting teacher, this is the Messiah, the Son of God. Worship him. Let's pray. Jesus, we are your people. And we are those who do confess that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world to take the sins of humanity that we might have forgiveness and life. May we have eyes to see you more fully, to worship your splendor and your grandeur, to be amazed at you again and again and again that though you died in weakness, it was power restrained. And even in this Passion Week, when the forces of the world are arrayed against you, they could not overcome you. And your seeming moment of weakness was in fact your greatest victory. Press these truths on our hearts and change our lives and conform us by your spirit. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.